I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Psalm 106, about the middle of the Bible, Psalm 106. If you're in the Blue Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 505, Psalm 106. You know, there are some passages in Scripture, we especially find them in the Psalms, that are just full of thanksgiving and full of praise to the Lord. Uh, Psalms like we just read earlier uh, this morning for our call to worship, Psalm 100. Uh, Listen to these words again. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. A shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. And then a little further down, enter into His gates with thanksgiving. In his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. The Lord is good. So these are these are psalms and, and passages that are there to help us to express our hearts to the Lord, to lift up praise and thanksgiving to him. You know, it's it's the same thing we do with our with our prayers. Uh, we we know you may be familiar with that acronym A C T which helps us to recognize the elements that need to be there in prayer. And the A is adoration. And the T is thanksgiving. And so in our prayers, we should have a heart of praise and thanksgiving before the Lord. Uh, you know, I, I liken it to the reaction of a, a child. I've shared this before, but uh, dad comes home at the end of a long day and the child runs to the front door to... To, to meet his dad and has his arms upraised and uh, outstretched for his dad. And, and he says, pick me up and hold me. It's one of those things that doesn't happen in our house anymore, at least not in the same way. Not with the words, pick me up and hold me. Uh, but, but again, that's a, it's a statement of adoration uh, and uh, of, of love. And that is how we need to come to our God. Now, there are other psalms that express praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, yet they're very different because their purpose is not just that. It's not just an expression of the heart before the Lord. But it is, at least for some, to provide a reminder of where that part of praise and thanksgiving has come from. And in doing that, uh, really to stir up inside the, the heart so that it is reminded and so that, that thankfulness is overflowing all over again. Now, there was a, a song uh, from many decades uh, back. Uh, the, the, the words go, you've lost that love and feeling. Right? I, you know, I kind of think of that song in, in this case uh, because these psalms might be titled You've lost that thankful feeling. And so you need to be stirred up. You need to be reminded. Now, a psalm like that or a passage like that must, by necessity, it must go to some pretty dark places. Uh, Because we know that true thanksgiving uh, and and praise and adoration always comes out of a, a place of great need, out of a recognition of even lostness. Uh, And then, 
It goes to experiencing deliverance uh, and redemption, and that's where you get that great sense of thankfulness. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to read Psalm 106, which is a fairly lengthy psalm. But please notice as I do, just to, just to help you with knowing the layout of it, that from verse 6 all the way to verse 46, this is pretty much all one chunk. It all goes together. And that's where you'll find specific events throughout Israel's history that give what I'm going to call a catalog of failure. And if you know anything about Israel's history, that won't surprise you. Now, I will say as, as I read this, that this might be, if you know God's Word pretty well, it might be a great place to test yourself and to see how well you know Israel's history. Try to pick out uh, the events here that are being brought out. You could even, if you know it well enough, try to think, well, where is that found in Scripture? You could jot that down in the margin of your Bible if you'd like. Uh, but by my count, there are at least eight. Some would say there are nine, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say eight this morning of those events that we see here in the psalm that we're going to look at this morning. And altogether, they do, they do make up a very ugly history. You'll see what I mean in just a moment as we go through it. This is Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may, give, that I may glory in your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease amongst them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea, 
Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him in the waters of Meribah. It went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols. It became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes. They were brought low in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you as, as we take a look at this psalm. We thank you that you provide for us. We thank you, Lord, that you do open our eyes to be able to see and to understand who we are, what we are, our own condition. And then out of that, to be able to understand who you are and what you have done. Uh, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to be able to see that, to understand it. Uh, help us to see, Lord, uh, as we together work our way through this passage. We pray that you would make it plain before us. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, maybe uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I was part of a small discipleship group 
Uh, this is back in, in Dallas. It was called a Life on Life group. I know there are at least two people here who know about these kinds of groups, the Life on Life groups, so they're, fami- they're going to be familiar with this as I describe it. Uh, in these uh, discipleship groups, there's a, a, a curriculum that you follow, and whenever you start up one of the, the groups, uh, the members of the group uh, go through an exercise and in that exercise, they, they do something on their own, and then they present, present it to the group. Uh, and when I did that, uh, it really made a big impact upon me. It stood out, and it was very helpful to me. The exercise was this. You take a blank sheet of paper, and then you think back over your entire life, and on that blank sheet of paper, you map out your story, the story of your life. But it's your story in this vein with respect to what God has done in your life. In other words, this is your story, but at the same time, it's God's story. And so you're looking back, you're putting it, putting it down, kind of graphing it out. Now, I'll tell you, when I, I first did this exercise, I, I was thrown off. Uh, because I, I knew that I had come to trust in Christ at a certain point in my life. It was when I was 34 years of age. And so I thought, well, if I do this, everything prior to that is going to be, be blank. But then I looked back at the instructions and I realized that they were calling for me to recognize throughout my entire life when God, when I see, when I could tell that God was doing a work in my life, whether I was blind to it at the time or not, that He, throughout our, my life, was intervening, that He, uh, at, at various times in particular, was calling me to Himself. And so as I did this exercise, I realized it enabled me to have a, a, a much clearer picture of myself and of what I was like, while at the same time having a much clearer picture of God and the work that He was doing and what He was like. It helped me to see myself accurately and to see the Lord God more clearly. Now that's really, in essence, what the, what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 106. He begins with this great statement of praise and thanksgiving. It's very similar to what we see in, in Psalm 100 and other psalms like that. He says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good for His steadfast love endures forever. Now, it's clear that this, this psalm is for those especially who, who know the Lord and who rejoice in the Lord with thankful hearts. But then, as I said earlier, the, the bulk of this psalm is all about looking back over the story of Israel and mapping it out in order to see their story, but at the same time to see God's story superimposed upon it. Now why? Why would a psalmist do this? Well, that's where a heart of true thanksgiving comes from, for those who know the Lord. It comes from being reminded of who we truly are. Yes, in all of its ugliness, if we're honest with ourselves, 
uh, and at the same time seeing who God truly is and how He has worked in our lives. You know, God's grace and God's steadfast love, His faithfulness, can only really be known and appreciated and attested to when we see it against the backdrop of our own selves, our own failures. Uh, And so we need that, if you think about it. We need that in order to get a a heart uh, that's right, a heart for joy, a heart of encouragement, a heart that that truly appreciates and knows uh, the Lord and then responds to it. Because when we know that the Lord is faithful, of our lives, when we know that He loves us and that He has loved us, that changes the way that we live our lives, and that's what we're able to see in the midst of our story. Now, before we go and we walk through this, I want us to notice that the psalmist doesn't here just see himself as an individual, Uh, even though he does experience things as an individual, as we might expect. Yet, we see that his identity, how he sees himself, is really as a member of God's people. Look at, look at how he prays in verses 4 and 5. He says, remember me, O Lord. Me, he's talking as an individual. Uh, uh, show me your goodness. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Look at the reason that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. Speaking about God's people, you know, we are so used to thinking in an individualistic way. That's, that's the world in which we live. That's the culture in which we live. Uh, we want God's blessings for us. We want God's blessings for our family. Now, this may challenge you as we go through this, because it's not just here, this is throughout God's Word, because God calls us to see ourselves as, the part, as a part of a new humanity, of His new humanity. You know, this reminds me of a passage back in 1 Peter chapter 2 that actually comes out of the Old Testament, out of Exodus 19, where Peter says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You know, we can see here, that's, that's how the psalmist sees himself. And so keep that in mind as we look for that heart of true thankfulness. That heart that comes when we see and when we're reminded of the great depth of God's steadfast love for us, His faithfulness toward us, which becomes apparent when we recognize two things. First of all, who we are in our sin and who He is in His grace. Two things, simple. Sin, His grace. So let's, let's look at those two. First of all, our sin the exercise that I described earlier and and 
do this in the context of taking an honest look at yourself, your life, who you are, and who we are. And we're going to do that through the lens of the nation of Israel, as the psalmist has provided for us. Now, uh, first, look at verse 6. Look at how he begins this litany of failure. This is a key verse, so don't miss what he's saying. Verse 6, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. You you can underline the word we there if you want, because apart from this, apart from seeing it in this way, you might think as you go through this that he's given a history lesson, that he's just talking about them and about what they did But that's not it at all. Because he says here, we and our fathers. In other words, we are no different from our fathers. When we look at them, we see a reflection of us. Their failures a reflection of our failure, our sin. And so that's the the connection that makes this so valuable to us because he's speaking directly to us. I would say, always beware. When, when there's a teacher or a preacher and, and you listen and you just hear regularly, it's always talking about them, about their problems, about their sin. And it's not dealing here because God's Word deals here and here. Uh, and so let's, let's have that in mind as we uh, walk through this. Allow this to work upon your own heart, your own failures. Now, as we go through it again, I, as there are eight events that the psalmist maps out briefly and touches on, on each. Uh, and as we do, I'll give you one, maybe two words for the sin that's displayed by these people. And as I read, just remember our own tendency. And that is, it's, it's always there. It's to minimize our own sin. Not see ourselves as we really are, but notice the psalmist doesn't do that at all. He just puts it out there as it is. Let's let's ourselves try not to do that either. So, uh, verses seven to twelve, the sin here. Is now, this this happens just after the the, the Passover a, a while back. We went through the book of Exodus. You remember this? After the Passover, Pharaoh uh, uh, allowed the people to go. Then he had a change of heart. And so Pharaoh and his army chased the Israelites all the way up to the, the, the edge of the Red Sea. So they had Pharaoh and, and his army on one side. They had the Red Sea on the other. What were they to do? Now a little context. Remember the ten plagues? Remember how God threw out a time period and, and through Moses, uh, he, he overcame the, the people and overcame Pharaoh. And finally, you know, we got the last play of the Passover and, and the children of the Egyptians died. But then Israel, he protected them. Now remember, he's led them out. He's watched over them. He's provided for them. And here are the words. Verse 7, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. They rebelled. Just ask you, are there times 
even with all that you know about God, even with all that you've seen God do in your life, are there times when in your life you face difficulty? You face real challenge. You're up against it, and everything that you about God goes out the window, and you fail to trust in Him, that He is your provider, that He is your God. It's a place of unbelief. Have you seen that in your life? Look now at verses 13 to 15. Now, uh, this, this comes, just to give the context, it comes after the Red Sea event, after the Lord had led them through the Red Sea, had parted the waters, which made a, a wonderful statement of power and of care for the people. And uh, right there in verse 12, it says, Then they believed His words, they sang His praise. That was... Uh, Exodus 15, the, the, the song of Moses, they had seen what God did, but says they soon forgot His work. This is the sin of discontent. Because again and again and again in the desert, they were discontented. And I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, out of uh, Numbers chapter 11 that this Verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them, among the Israelites, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again, and they said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and, and there is nothing at all but this manna to eat. Now, be honest. Sound familiar at all? Do you ever complain and, and grumble knowing all that God has given, all that He provided? Maybe it's because of, of, of neighbors that aren't doing the things that you'd like. Maybe it's because you've been inconvenienced in some way. Maybe it's because of other people. But the question, where are you lacking that God just hasn't provided the sin is one of discontent. So we've got to ask ourselves, do I see that in my background? Discontent. The third here is verses 16 through 18. Uh, the sin here is jealousy. And you could also say the sin of standing against authority. Uh, you, you may remember this. This is out of uh, number 16. When there were a group of men that were jealous of Moses. And, and the, the text says they rose up against Moses. The men were Korah and Dathan and Abiram. They, they rose up against uh, Moses and Aaron. And they said, in essence, what makes you different? Why should you lead us? We know the Lord. They were standing against authority, but it was because they were jealous. There were severe consequences. If you remember, they came of this, uh, the, the earth opened up and swallowed the men and, and it came back over them. Then there was a fire that came out and the 250 who had stood with them were destroyed by the fire. The sin here is jealousy. You know, I remember uh, several years ago, I was part of a software development team and there was a, a very talented man who was part of that team. I, I knew him well. We knew his, his family well. 
And I remember for a period of a couple of years, I was, and I could even put my finger on it then, I was jealous of him. He was a great leader. He had great technical skills. But what I remember about it was that that jealousy, it took over me. It was something I couldn't put to rest inside of me. It, it continued on and on. It was strong within me. The key is look out for jealousy in your life. Uh, maybe you can look back. Maybe you can see that. Maybe today you can see that in your life. What jealousy does, it tears down. It destroys the sin of jealousy. Uh, look next at the next passage, verses 19 through 23. This is one that, that most know. You know. It was back in Exodus again, uh, chapter 32, the golden calf incident. Uh, Moses leaves for a time period, and, and, the, and the people begin to get restless. And they called upon Aaron to make a golden calf. And they said to help to worship the Lord. They weren't worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping the calf. Now look what the text says. They made a calf in Horeb, verse 19, and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Now this is the same sin that's pointed to in Romans chapter 1 that, that points out the depth Sin in man. And a place where it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for that which is earthly. Uh, they exchanged it for mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's an exchange that takes place. God for that which is earthly. You know, if you think about uh, the world in which we live, we constantly have things pulling at us. And each of us have our own areas where we struggle. So the question is, what is it that, that threatens to make you forget God? What is it in your past that has made you forget God? You've got to watch out for the sin of idolatry. Uh, next, verses 24 to 27. Uh, again, you'll, you'll probably remember this, the 12 spies that were sent into the land of Canaan to, to spy out the land. It was a good land, a land uh, flowing with milk and honey. Uh, large fruit. The sin here is the sin of drawing back. The sin of drawing back. These men that went in, they knew God's promises. They knew His commandment. They knew His power. They knew what He said He would do. And they knew what He had commanded them to do. They even saw the goodness of the land clearly when they went in. But what did they do? It says they gave a bad report. Verse 24, They despised the pleasant land having no faith in His promise. They refused His command to conquer. You know what the consequences of this sin were? That for 40 years, the children of Israel wandered in the desert, not being able to go into the land. The entire generation died out and a new generation came. 
Have you ever known what God would have you do? It's just, it's, it's plain, it's, it's clear. Maybe clear in His, in His Word. What you should do and what you shouldn't do. You saw what's good and right, but you drew back. Maybe it was because of fear. Uh, maybe it was because of another reason you drew back and you didn't move forward. This is a sin to watch out for in our lives and, and to live over the course of our lives. Uh, have we sinned in this way? Number, number 6, verses 28 through 31. Uh, you'll see there in the first line, then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. This is Numbers 25. And the sin here is the sin of apostasy. If you're familiar with that passage, the, the people gave themselves over to their own passions. And they mixed with the Midianites in the land. There was open sexual immorality. And in doing so, they abandoned their faith. We actually see here, uh, verse 29, they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. And the for this sin. That plague broke out amongst them. 24,000 were killed uh, in that plague. You know, our world encourages us to be free. It encourages us to do what your heart feels like. It says, what you do with your body is really up to you. Don't let anyone else put controls over that. God says otherwise. He says that we and all that we have belong to Him. This is the sin of apostasy. It will draw you away from the Lord. Maybe you see that. Maybe you can look back over your life and you've been able to see that uh, at some point or at times. Now the next one, look at verses 32 and 33. Remember, Meribah, word. It's best known for Moses. Uh, the Lord used Moses to provide the people with water out of the rock, right? Again and again. But here Moses strikes the rock out of anger because he's sick and tired of the people and of their grumbling. The sin here is the sin of bitterness. It both comes from the people and from Moses. Uh, Moses with his anger, there's bitterness there. The people, they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining. Similar to the first one that we saw. Bitterness. It is a sin that sets people. It's a sin that tears down. It's a sin that breaks apart. You can kind of think about a, think about a fire. Maybe a, a fire that starts small uh, in a forest. But then as there's nothing there to put it out, it, it spreads and it grows as it's allowed to burn. That is bitterness. Uh, it spreads, it grows uh, from one person to a group and gets larger. But the problem with bitterness is that we rarely see it in ourselves. Others can look at us and they can say, it's plain, it's clear. You've got bitterness in your heart and it's so hard to see in ourselves. And so that's something to beware of and to watch out for. Uh, finally, Verses 38 and 30, I'm sorry, verses 34 through 39. This is, this is once the people finally enter into the land of Canaan. You can think of the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, especially. 
And this is what the Lord warned against again and again and again. And it's the sin of mixture. When the people entered the land, they didn't obey the Lord. Look at 34. They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them. See the failure there. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols. It follows with all the things that they learned, egregious things that they learned. Why? Because they disobeyed the Lord. Because they, they, they wanted to become a part of the peoples in the land. Look at where we live. We live in a world that, that says, Come, be a part of us. You're no different. We're all the same. And we constantly face the temptation to mix with the world around us, to become unequally yoked. We see it in marriage. You can see it in giving your heart over in friendship. You can see it in the workplace, on and on. This is the sin of mixture, and the result of it will be that we learn the culture. We learn the ways of the people, and we take them on ourselves. And so all the way through, what have we been doing? We've been looking at the story of this people. What is it that the psalmist wants us to see? Why has he given this picture? Well, undoubtedly, he wants us to see the condition of the people and how, how deep their sin is and how devastating the effects of sin, the consequences of sin are. We also can see how weak they are. They fell back again and again and again. They saw the power of the Lord. But they continued to fall back. Now, if you think about these people, does the word unworthy come to mind? Maybe rebellious come to mind? It really is an ugly picture, isn't it? They spit upon the God who, who provided for them, who protected them, who rescued them. You know, we might be tempted even point our fingers at them and say those ungrateful evildoers. We've got to go back. We've got to read the psalmist's words in verse 6. But we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. What's his point there? There's no difference between them and us. You know, man hasn't changed from that, that very first point in, in the garden when Adam sinned, and then the curse came, and that sin continued on and continued on all the way through. You know, maybe as we've gone through this, this litany of failure, maybe you've been able to see this in yourself as you look back over your story. Maybe if, if we were to put a blank sheet of paper in front of you, and you were to draw out your story, it would contain much of this. Would it be ugly like theirs was ugly? The point is that when we know our condition, then we know that we too are weak. Then we know that we too are unworthy. Then we know that we too are, are incapable of drawing ourselves any closer to God. And when we are convinced of that, it's then that we're going to see our great need. It's then that we're going to begin to call out. Kind of like Isaiah called out. Isaiah chapter 6. He said, Woe is me. 
for I am lost. You know, having looked at our sin, now we're prepared to see who God is. Who God is in all of His grace. You know, this is the thing that the psalmist had been preparing us for because, you know, all the way through, what we just read, there is a picture of the Lord God. A picture of, of God that should drive us to a place of joy and of praise and of thanksgiving. Uh, because you've got all of this sin, horrific sin, egregious sin. Yet notice, this is a psalm of praise. From the very beginning, it says, praise the Lord. Look at the very last line of the psalm. Praise the Lord. So how is that possible? This is a psalm of praise, and yet through and through, at the heart of it, it's all about this ugliness. You know, here's what one commentator said. He said, For all its exposure of man's ingratitude, this is a psalm of praise because it is God's extraordinary long-suffering that emerges as the real theme. And so, despite the sin and the, the rebellion of the people, what do we see here? We see that God remains faithful. Look with me at verse 44. 44 and 45. Now, recognize this comes at the end of this long catalog of, of sin and rebellion. You can look at the, the two lines prior to that. Uh, but they were rebellious in their purposes. They were brought low in their iniquity. And immediately out of that we read, Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His fast love. That's the thing that we need to grab a hold of here. That the acceptance of God's people isn't based upon anything in them. Anything at all in them. The basis is, we see it here, His covenant. He remembered His covenant. It's His promises that He made to them. Think about what that means. It means that His anger that He had before. Now look back at, at verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. The anger that He had toward them before is restrained. It's held back. How? By His great love. By His steadfast love. You know, the, the Hebrew word there is hesed. We have heard that word before. Hesed means covenant love. Uh, it, it means covenant faithfulness. That is what we are standing upon if we're standing in the Lord. It's His steadfast love, His ever-faithfulness, which is not at all dependent upon us so that when they cry out to Him, He responds. What is that? That is the mercy of God. It's the grace of God. It's that which is completely undeserved. It's unexpected. This is not the way our world works, is it? It doesn't match our experience in this world. You know, we can see that in another place in this psalm, uh, in the Red Sea incident. If you go back to verse 8, uh, we, can, we can see this again. Remember what the sin was here? The sin of unbelief especially. And it says, verse 8, Yet He saved them 
for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. You know, God's reason for saving this had nothing to do with the people themselves. It wasn't anything that they had within them that was deserving, nothing that they had earned. They were saved because God had regard for His own glory. You see what knowing this does for us? It really frees us up. Because no longer are we needing to look to ourselves. No longer are we going digging deeper and deeper as we look at our own guilt and at our own sinfulness. But rather, we're, we're ready to confess it to Him without holding anything back, without hiding anything, without minimizing our sin, because we're able to see that God's grace is far greater than our sin. What did we read earlier out of Ephesians? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your condition is. Grace is not contingent upon those things. It is the gift of God that no one may boast. Not a result of works. And so if you fail to see the depth of your sin. And if you fail to see and to cling on to the Lord Jesus and the greatness of His grace that's there apart from anything that you have done, then the result is going to be a diminishing, a lack of love for the Lord, a lack of understanding of who He is, a lack of appreciation, a lack of thankfulness for Him. Yet, if we do see that great chasm between who we are and what we have done, and we see it as we've gone through it here, that this is us, and then we see the great loving kindness of the Lord and His mercy and His grace toward us, what's the result going has to be a love, a, a heart of, of love toward Him, a desire to reach up to Him and to embrace Him and to follow Him and to serve Him and to proclaim His goodness to the world around us uh, because then we're able to respond with praise and thanksgiving. There's one more thing I'd just like for us to real briefly see here because God gives us in this psalm a glimpse into the how behind our salvation. Uh, just a couple of accounts. If you look at verse 28, this is the Baal of Peor uh, and, the, and the deep sin of the people in their apostasy. But then look at verse 30. There was one. It was a priest. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. There was one who stood in the gap. There was one who, who, who stood in for the people. And we see that again. Look at uh, verses 19 through 23. This is the account of the golden calf. And you remember the great sin that was there, the sin of idolatry at the heart of it. And look at verse 23. It gets down to that point. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Because that's what God has to do. He's a holy God. And we are a sinful people. And, and that's, that's, that's what the Lord must do. It's just like I've often said, a, a butterfly. You know, a, a caterpillar must turn into 
a butterfly, if they're of a particular type. It's just who they are. And the same is true with the Lord God in His holiness. And so it says, Therefore He said He would destroy them had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before Him. Turn away His wrath from destroying them. That wasn't Moses. That was turning to the Lord Jesus. And to what the Lord Jesus has done for us as He stood in the breach for us, the only one who could, the only one who could take away the wrath of God that was upon us, upon His people, because of who we are. And therefore, it's in that person, the Lord Jesus, that we have this grace, that we have this forgiveness, and that we have, therefore, a heart that recognizes it, and a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of praise for Him. I'm going to, I'm going to close with these words of Titus chapter 3 that shows something first of us, of who we really are, but then it interposes on top of that, on top of our story, God's story. Titus, or Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Doesn't that sound like the world around us? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is what the Lord Jesus has done for every one of us, that simply turn to Him and trust in Him. That's what we receive. And therefore, for the rest of our lives, as we live that out, and as we struggle, we continue to be sinners, and as we struggle with that sin, Again and again, we can look to that which is He has done and we can know that His grace is far, far, far greater than our sin. And we can take joy in the heart of thanksgiving. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for that goodness and that grace that You have shed. We thank You, Lord, that You didn't stop. You didn't give up. That You are true to Your promises. And will ever be true to Your promises because that is who You are. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see that, to know that, to see the depth of our sin, to recognize it, to, to deal with it, to be honest about it, not to minimize it. But we also pray, Lord, at the same time that You would help us to see the Lord Jesus and the greatness of that salvation which is ours in Christ. Pray that You would help us to take great joy in it and to come to You as is right with a heart of thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name.